Welcome to VCR, Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I like drinking wine more than I used to. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, And this is part two of our Godfather Oscars discussion. That's right. The 50-year anniversary of the Godfather winning Best Picture at the Oscars and the 51st year of The Godfather being released, one of the greatest movies of all time and a favorite of mine. I'm sure one of a favorite of yours as well, but maybe not. We'll see. We'll talk We'll talk about our personal reviews a little bit later. We shall um, see. If you've never seen this movie, I would highly recommend going to our first episode, the primer episode, and kind of getting an idea of what you're in for, when to watch it, and who's involved in the movie, and where to watch it as well. There's a, a very good discussion there where we won't spoil anything. But here we are, part two, talking spoilers, and we're going to dive right into it and talking in front of the camera and moving our way back. And so with that being said, let's just dive right into it. And where I want to start is at the literal very beginning, or even maybe before the beginning, the opener to this movie the opening credits of this movie probably top three openers of all time and part of the reason for that is because there's almost no credits in the opening all we get is the black and it goes and then you hear the godfather theme song start playing the and then and then we see the godfather like come up and the only credit is to the writer of the original book and then we'll jump right into the movie and that is like one of the greatest in my opinion it's one of the greatest openers to a movie ever is that an opening credit or is that just a title card though it's it's the opening credit title card like uh so that was it was actually a a choice that they made when they were making the film to basically just not really have credits like most movies you know you've got three four five minutes of of opening credits yeah i guess back in the day they did didn't they yeah and this is kind of one of those first times that they didn't and it's used masterfully and i'm somebody who often fast forwards through those opening bits because i can't stand that and so for me this was like icing on the cake chef's kiss chef's kiss yes um it, it would go like like i said it probably is in it's probably number one for openers uh, for a movie takes the cannoli yeah takes the cannoli um like second would maybe be like pulp fiction or something but i don't even remember pulp fiction pulp fiction's like the one where it's like Uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah, that one's an awesome one but anyway so we get that then we get the opener where bonazera is there explaining the story of his daughter and what was done to her and asking for justice from the dawn she did not weep but I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like, like I said, in the first episode, it's like a masterclass in filming. Like it's it's that cold open where in the black, all we see at this point is his face in the darkness telling us the story. Yeah. This horrific story of his daughter. And telling us the story. Yeah. He's looking right at us. Right. And we pull back and we see the Godfather looming in frame, right? Like we just see the back of his head and his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And then it intentionally breaks the 180 degree rule and suddenly, boom, we're facing the Godfather, Don Corleone. Yeah. I did it again, didn't I? Corleone? Yeah. yeah corleone damn it <laughs> i mean it's italian so you ah. know, most italian names you would pronounce them but i'm pretty sure it's corleone no it's corleone i'm just i'm not as italian as i <laughs> i often get mistaken for italian but i just betray i just blew it i just betrayed the confidence <laughs> like getting that intimate first look at what the business is and who the characters are the wedding scene is incredible because it sets up everybody 
who they are, what their personality is, where they fit in the family, um, as well as some other side characters like Luca Brazza. And, and I hope that it is a masculine <laughs> child. <laughs> Funny enough, uh, they actually didn't almost have that as the opener for the movie. The opener for the movie almost was the wedding, and Coppola had to be convinced that, that the opening scene should be uh, more like uh, one of his older films, Patton. Huh. So yeah, so that scene was rewritten and and again, it it just draws you in so well immediately, right? Oh, can you imagine? I can't imagine this movie starting any other way. Right. Like jeez. And it it sets up like the romanticism to to the mafia and to the way that the business is run, right? Like it's it's so everything's just so you know like i'll 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 do you this favor and and someday you'll you'll pay me back and it's all it's fine like and it's it just... is it is almost like you know it, i think i mentioned in our primer episode he Vito says in that scene we're not mur-. he's like we're not murderers but yeah. again i'm watching it like aren't you though like yeah. it's really there is a weird mysticism to the gangsters but there's also a weird sense of hypocrisy Right. Right? Because, like, you know, they're clearly they're clearly bad dudes, but we don't really see them being bad all that often. Or at least when we see them being violent, it feels justified. Well, and that's part of probably what makes this movie so special and so universally loved is because it doesn't... You know, it doesn't drag a lot of our heroes through the mud. It doesn't drag the Corleones through the mud very often. Yeah. They're all shown as, like, valiant, heroic characters. And, you know, it's it's a story about this crime family, but it's a very clean look at that. I was thinking, like, because Vito, Marlon Brando, is clearly the most captivating character in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But, like, the movie almost kind of goes out of its way to make him seem moral, or at least moral compared to the alternative you know but again like there is there's a scene later on where he's meeting with the other five families and he's like eh, like guns and liquor and women these are victimless crimes and i'm like are they though like <laughs> especially that last part like yeah, yeah. right yeah. and and that's something that based on my reading of of the mafia even at at this point in american history is is definitely more romantic than actually what the, those mafia guys were doing at that mm. point in time. Like they were definitely involved with drugs at this point in time, um, and, and maybe always involved had a drug connection. And there was definitely like, like they weren't good guys. They they were not like the Corleones. I think um, like I'm not really you know a student of uh, Italian American history, but like. Mm. I think I did remember reading, though, that, like, Italians were extremely discriminated against when they came to America. Yes. And they often had to go to the mob for help and protection because the police didn't give a hot shit what they were going through. Yeah, there, there's kind of—and that's also something probably very American is the way Police not giving a hot traveled. shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, a, a lot of that is, is baked into American culture. But uh, Italian-Americans— when when they heard this movie was coming out and, and even the mafia at that point were very against a movie like this coming out because they oh, were really? worried that that Coppola wasn't going to paint them in a good light because up until this point they also weren't 
painted in a good light in in American cinema. And that probably also goes to that kind of underlying racism that you're kind of alluding to. Kind of. So, and and post this movie, it was in part celebrated, especially by the Italian mob loved this movie. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but Why wouldn't they? There's maybe a little bit of a love-hate relationship because it, it's almost like... Uh, if you think about like Narcos and Pablo Escobar, like Colombian people, Pablo Escobar put Colombia on the map, but he he's also, also a very, very notorious figure. And yeah, he almost also killed thousands of people. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, like he was beloved right up until he wasn't. And and he maybe he wasn't always beloved in Colombia, but there's a romanticism to him as well that you could kind of compare to in in the show Narcos. Yeah. And it's just, again, this kind of ties in with like, you know, maybe what better call Saul and breaking bad took is how like, you know, we just kind of, you're almost automatically going to sympathize with the viewpoint character of any story. Yeah. Even when maybe you shouldn't. Right. And that said though, like I have to admit, like, Vito does come across as this very kind of loving grandfatherly presence throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, and that was intentional too. Yeah. In, in the design of the character. Yeah, really. So it's, it's, it's interesting. He does almost kind of, there's a lot of like tension. It seems in this movie between the quote unquote new world and the quote unquote old world. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned before, uh Boston era coming to Vito, wanting vengeance when the american court system couldn't give him justice is very old testament new testament Mm -hmm. and there's also this thing of like Vito kind of believes in the old ways of doing things but everyone else is kind of getting into the new way of doing things which is drugs essentially which Vito protests because he considers it a dirty business Mm -hmm. and his protesting that is what leads to his assassination attempt yeah so it's yeah, and then well, I guess we got to get into Michael too, right? Yep. The tension between the old godfather, Vito Corleone, and the new godfather that Michael Corleone becomes. Right. Do you want to do that discussion now or should we, what do you want to talk about? You know, why don't we just do it now? Sure. <laughs> Michael, he sort of becomes a much more brutal, much more ruthless Don. Right. Throughout the course of the movie. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because... He definitely wasn't the first choice to be the godfather, even though Vito later admits that Sonny was a terrible godfather and could never have really <laughs> taken that role on. Yeah, and Fredo, uh, like, yeah. we don't even talk about Fredo. So it's really interesting because it's that there's that first inkling where you're like, oh, there's something under the surface here that with Michael. And when they're talking about like what they're going to do to retaliate with the police chief who's corrupt and the other mobster salazera um, yeah salazera what a sinister sounding name is that what his name was it's Sala- salazera or something salazo salazo okay i added a few extra syllables <laughs> <laughs> yeah so salazo and michael comes up with this really ingenious plan and at first everybody laughs it off right partially probably because like they're not used to michael being a part of the business and he's also kind of bringing in these new ideas right these these very like intelligent plans that there are several parts to put in motion it's really interesting and i touched on this a little bit in our last episode how like sunny is all tempestuous and hot-headed and brutal whereas tom hagen comes across as almost like 
very like cold and rational, but maybe a little overly cautious. And Michael is kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Like he's, he's almost he's almost kind of a natural. Yeah. Like he comes up with the plan, oh well, let's just invite them to a restaurant and I'll shoot both of them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. <laughs> like And that's... that's where like the connection to breaking bad is, right? Like he's he's very much similar to Walter White, or Walter White is very similar to him. Um in their ingenuity. Yeah. And and the way that they operate their business. What's really funny is the Better Call Saul episode, the first like episode where Saul shows up in Breaking Bad. Saul calls him Vito Corleone, and he calls himself Tom Hagen as conciliar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is really interesting, and there's actually several references after that in other episodes to The Godfather. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. So. Michael is is definitely cold and I love the transition of him to becoming a godfather. That final final scene with him and Kay and he lies to her face and then we get that final scene as they start conducting business and it zooms back out of the room and then they close the door in her face is like just so poetic and so, so like so cold. Yes, yeah, so cold and it's just like Michael is like Michael has become the godfather. Like that is mm. that is the scene that just really solidifies who he is now. Yeah. And where his life is headed. And where mm-hmm. his life is already headed because he's there. He's now the godfather. And that's and the, even before that scene where he has everybody killed during the baptism is again brought up in, in Breaking Bad and used in Breaking Bad in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a very powerful scene in showing like who Michael Corleone is. He's a cold-blooded killer and he will do whatever he needs to to put his family on top. Basically, yeah. And and he will basically he just cuts everything. Like he instead of like trying to deal with the other families and trying to, you know, have this uh thing where I can't remember which character says it partway through the movie where he says, "Oh, like, you know, these turf wars, these these mafia yeah, wars, yeah, they yeah. happen every 5, 10 years. Like, you know, everybody's got to blow some steam off and then we all become friends again for another 5, 10 years." Yeah, um, which and, is funny when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, and and Michael's the one to break that cycle a little bit. He's just scorched earth. Let's yeah. just kill everyone and figure it all out. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's that um so after Michael shoots those dudes, he has to spend a year or so hiding out in Italy. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene where they go to that uh Italian town and he says, Where are all the men? That's and, that's Corleone actually. Right. He said no, he says like, Where are all the men? Yeah, yeah. Corleone, the home the village where they're from originally. Yeah. And he says, Where are all the men? And one of his bodyguards said, Oh, they've all been killed by vendettas. Right. And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> we're going to I'm going to bring that back to America with me. Yeah, a little yeah. bit, eh? <laughs> what a beautiful like kind of midway cut to like outside of New York. I love the juxtaposition between like being in New York and this very built up modern day and going into this little village. It's one of those things where like it almost shouldn't work. Mhm. Cuz it's just 10 or 15 minutes of Michael Corleone in Italy getting married and hooked up to an Italian lady, Apollina. Yeah. And like, it almost feels like it should have been cut, 
but it somehow really works. It really works. Yeah. Um, and some of those scenes are like, like I looked over at Jess and I was like, God, this is such a beautiful town. Like I, I just want to be there. Like when they, when they first show up at the town and you see it up on the hill, like it's, it's almost like I'm in awe at that point um, mm. at how beautiful and old school it is. By the way, I love how he uh, introduces himself to Apollina and that he just enter- he shakes her father down into uh, being invited. <laughs> Maybe that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. Instead of approaching <laughs> the woman, I need to just intimidate her father. That's a really great scene. And a, a part of what makes that scene great is he recognizes, Michael recognizes that he can't speak Italian well enough to actually convey what he wants um, well enough. And so he basically like in just a very like dominating way just says i'm going to speak english and you're going to translate for me and we're just this is how things are going to work and like and this is how and again this is how things are going to work you're going to give me the opportunity with your daughter basically like Mm -hmm. we're going to meet i'm like i am a very important man from a very important family and well we'll do this right and it's going back a little bit to who Vito is and saying you know i'm a i will apologize for the way that we got off on the wrong foot here and and how they maybe misspoke to him originally about who uh apolina was but at the same time there is a certain amount of respect that you owe me for who i am and you will you will at least entertain the idea of of giving your daughter to me i do have one slight complaint actually about the movie that does kind of tie in with michael and it's that as much as i love this movie and as much as i think Al Pacino is fantastic as Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. I do feel like his character arc is a little muddy at times. You In know what, what way I'm... do you mean? I mean that like he feels a little remote. I don't really know that I have as good a sense of who Michael is. I and... I think that's maybe a little bit by design. Maybe. It just it seems like so he volunteers to shoot those two guys. Right. Which makes sense because the family's in danger. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of, the whole implication is that like he kind of got a taste of power and control and now he wants more. So he's intimidating that guy into meeting his daughter. And then from there afterwards, he ends up becoming a stone cold godfather. So... I mean, like you're, you are simplifying it in, in a way. Like Apollina was murdered horrifically in front of him. That is true. That does happen. And then after that, I mean, not even after that, but right around that same time, his brother is horrifically murdered. Also that, yeah. And there's a point in time where I think he just has to step up and fill the role that his his father and then his brother tried to fill. And it's it's somewhat forced upon him, but he's also started to grow to accept and want that kind of power and influence it's almost kind of like i'm not walking back what i just said but it is <laughs> it is kind of what is kind of interesting is how like it seems like there is this more brutal more violent criminal world mm-hmm. that's forming around them Vito doesn't really want any part of it but michael just adapts to it yeah he's like oh it's a more brutal more cutthroat business fine i'm gonna kill all my enemies and that's where i draw the comparison with the first season of westworld and william in it because william is this character who he's brought to westworld by his brother-in-law who is one of the owners of 
Westworld. Right. And his basically he doesn't seem like the kind of person who wants to be involved in the prostitution and the murder and everything that goes on at Westworld, like the the kind of selling aspects to the very wealthy people who go there. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed by his stepbrother until it's almost like he snaps. And at that point, like he embraces all of the chaos around him and is like, I'm going to adapt and be the person that I need to be to find success in this situation. And it's very a very, very similar character and uh, like you should really watch the first season of westworld because it's amazing i will at some point but it's i think it's a very similar arc in that where it's it's a character that partially because of who he was and where he was in line with the family was never really considering that role he goes off to war and who knows what war was like for him as well right like who knows who knows the person who he was before the war and who knows the person that the war made him into up until this point in time where we start the movie i guess just but the fact that we're sitting here saying who knows yeah i kind of wish i had known a little bit more about him yeah there's a little bit of a blank slate there and maybe part of that is also because of how much runtime this is and how much this is just as much Vito's story as it is michael's story it's yeah. the it's the end of Vito's story and the beginning of michael's story yeah it's good to want more i think but at the same time we're kind of being dropped off in this world at a very pivotal moment and yeah it just it kind of reminds me of that rick and morty quote where it's like wow you're really leaning into this quickly Dwayne." <laughs> no it's like wow you sure leaned into this quickly Dwayne." <laughs> yeah the i wanted to talk about some of the improvisation and ad-libbing that was going on and and this happens throughout the film actually and and i have several key scenes that i want to discuss with you okay so and and part of this actually stems from coppola himself he would actually have improvisational rehearsal sessions and what they would do was have dinner together like the whole corleone family and him would have dinner together and he and he forced all of them to be in character you couldn't break character during dinner and just kind of get a feel for like what everybody's role was within the family as well as who your character was which i think is a really interesting way to i would have given anything to have been a fly on the wall during those dinners yeah yeah, yeah exactly and i think that's part of what makes everything feel so so organic within the corleone family household like think about all of those scenes where everybody's kind of running around doing their own thing like it's a very chaotic but organized chaos to it it does feel like a real family yeah you know like i very much agree another improvisation that's one of my favorites that i actually wrote down that i i i didn't respect as much as i did this time around was when Sonny throws the camera on the ground at the beginning near the beginning of the movie from the paparazzi or the the news reporters or whoever and then throws the money on the ground afterwards to kind of pay him back yeah um that was actually all improvised like and that was the original like the first shot and take of it because he wasn't supposed to take the camera and smash it on the ground and so the shock of the actor who was playing the cameraman was was real and so like it's just a really well done scene and like i really i laughed really hard when he just throws the money aggressively at him afterwards (laughs) it's like pick it up (laughs) um and and basically like his explanation from for that was that uh what he said was where i came from you break something you replace it or you paid the owner so (laughs) i I love that just james like putting a little personality into the role i guess so yeah god he is fantastic in this movie yeah the scene where he finds out his little sister is being beaten Mm -hmm. 
and he just runs the guy down in the street and kicks the shit out of him in front of everyone. Like, yeah. Which is the correct response yep. if you find out your sister's in danger. But just, man, it's such a great scene. Although I will say... There are some punches that very clearly don't connect. There's some awkwardness to it. However, I, I do want to say there's a there's a little bit of drama on shoot with those two characters or with those two actors. So oh, really? James Caan and Gianni uh, Russo, they did not get along and they were definitely arguing throughout the movie. And so when he when Sonny beat Carlo, James Caan was actually like throwing some real punches in there as well as like some of the fake stuff. Like he actually broke two of Russo's ribs. Ouch. Um, and chipped his elbow and in addition to all of that as well when he grabs the garbage pail and then beats him with that that was all improvised as well oh, like he man. just took that so those props that were james con essentially just beat a guy up on camera yeah it was fantastic wasn't it it was pretty fantastic <laughs> <laughs> that scene really cements the hatred of those two characters as well right like it's it's very believable later on when you realize that sunny was murdered by Carlo, essentially. I mentioned earlier, there's that scene where they're all eating dinner and the sister, Connie, says like, daddy didn't talk business at the table. And her husband says, shut up. Right. And he, Sonny very clearly wheels around and says, don't you ever tell her to shut up. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, this is excellent foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. Like we're seeing the seeds of the conflict are planted. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they never wanted him to be a part of the family either. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's because they n maybe knew who he was or what his personality was like and how he didn't show. But or maybe if it was just like he just wasn't he wasn't a part of the family for. Well, there's long that scene enough. earlier on where Tom Hagen says to Vito, like, what does he say? Like, do we get Carlo involved? And yeah, what does Vito say? He's like. No, like give him, doesn't he say like give him a wage, but like don't talk business with him or something? Yeah. Yeah. Vito knows that he's not a great guy, I don't think. Yeah. Um, But Vito's also a respectful and, and wants his daughter to be happy, so. Yeah. What's funny is that like there is, there are similarities between Carlo and uh, Sonny. Mm -hmm. They're both cheating on their wives. They both have incredible tempers. Like right. it's almost... Yeah, they're almost kind of mirror images of each other. Yeah, you know what? You're you're not wrong actually there. And that's what makes maybe their conflict so interesting and almost like hypocritical in a way. Kinda, yeah. Um and the only the only difference is is that Connie is just part of the family, right? Yeah, so And actually on this note as well, when when Sonny's murdered, I didn't remember that Carlo was responsible for Sonny's murder. First of all, when the phone call came through, I thought that was a really strange call. Like, how how did how does somebody so blatantly like talk to somebody's wife and and just like not insinuate that she's meeting up to hook up with her husband, but also completely just obviously sound like she's hooking up with your husband? So that phone call threw me off. And then when Sonny goes over there and Sonny and I remember a second before Sonny's killed, I, so I have two thoughts right through my head. I'm like, oh my God, this is about to be where Sonny gets murdered. And then the second thought I had was how did everybody know that Sonny was going to be here at this specific point in time? Yeah. Did the, either of those thoughts kind of go through your head at all when you were watching or did you remember that? I remember I kind of got the, I was pretty sure the brother-in-law had something to do because I kind of remember that the movie ends with Michael killing him, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And then, which, by the way, great scene. By the way, this movie 
gave me so much anxiety in the sense that I am never letting anyone sit behind me in a car ever again. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's probably a good move. Yeah, yeah. There's that great scene early on when there's that one guy who has been sick for a while and Sonny is convinced that he had something to do with setting Vito up. Right. So they're like, oh, we're just going to go pick up some mattresses. Yeah, Polly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they shoot him in the back of the head. And then there's that great line where it's like, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Where what a I... what a cool area side note. What a what a cool spot to shoot that like with the backdrop of the the tall the wheat fields or whatever it no, is. No, but the wheat fields but then behind that you see Lady Liberty as oh, well. Oh yeah, I didn't even notice that. Huh. Yeah, I and I was saying to Jess at that point. I was like, I wonder if that area still exists or if it's completely built up by now. That's just where the mob went to take a leak and Yeah, it used shoot to be probably. Back of the head. Yeah. yeah. There are two great garrot scenes in this movie where they garrote people around the neck and like right luca brazi yeah the luca brazi scene in particular i was sitting there thinking like how the hell did they shoot this like right. did they actually strangle this guy on camera that sure looked like it yeah <laughs> like his eyes are bulging out of his head <laughs> like, yeah uh anyways what were we talking about oh we were talking about the all oh, right the plot point yeah i was a little like because okay i do have another slight criticism of this movie in that I didn't realize it took place over 10 years hmm. and the time jumps felt a little sporadic to me at times because okay. like Sonny beats up Carlo. Awesome. He deserves it. And then like five minutes into the movie later, he picks his fight with his wife and he's got no bruises or anything. So this is very clearly like a year or so later. Right. So, but it wasn't immediately obvious to me. I, I mean, I guess it's not so much that it wasn't immediately obvious. It just felt a little like, I don't know. The time jumps felt a little strange to me. Yeah, it wasn't always necessarily clear where we were. Like in when time. you when you told me when we started recording that this takes place over ten years, I was like, "Oh, so it does." <laughs> 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 that makes sense. Yeah, I I would agree with you that it's not necessarily always clear. So, but again, on that plot point of how Sunny got murdered, it is a little. Carlo... It just feels like almost like a plot hole the first time you watch it. I don't know if it feels like a plot hole, but it does feel a little like. So Carlo intentionally picks a fight with his wife because he knows Sonny will fly off the handle. Right. They set up a thing at a toll road, and then they blast him, Bonnie and Clyde style. Right. Uh, look how they massacred my boy. But see, that's why Sonny's such a captivating character, though, is that, like, you know, you can tell he's maybe not a good guy, but he cares about his family. But just he's so hot-headed. He keeps getting into trouble, right? right? Even the whole... So this mob war is going on for a year or so, and I think there's that scene where Tom Hagen kind of says to him, like, I, I forget explicitly what he says, but he kind of says, like, hey, maybe we should cool our jets on the mob war. Like, this is getting out of hand. And right. Sonny's just like, nah, screw it. Like, yeah. I'm angry. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So. Very emotional character. Very and, emotional, and yes. And very emotional leader style. Yeah. Like, he definitely, I stand by what I said, great knight, terrible king. Mm -hmm. yeah. i agree with that I, I think that's a really good analysis yeah going back to improvisation a little bit and also the character of johnny fontaine 
I love the character of Johnny Fontaine. Do you mean not Frank Sinatra? <laughs> not Frank Sinatra. And more on that later. Let's go back to that in, in our effects in filming and also kind of discussing the novel. But Johnny Fontaine, the smack that Vito gives him and that really awesome line where he tells him to be a man. Yeah. Um, you could be a man. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually improvised. That smack was a real smack and it was improvised by Marlon Brando, of course. And so Al Martino, uh, Johnny Fontaine's actor, his confusion was real and he just kind of had to roll with it. Uh, and James Conn said Martino didn't know whether to laugh or cry uh. at that. So <laughs> it was uh, it was a real shocker. <laughs> Can you imagine going home from work and being like, how was work, honey? Uh, Marlon Brando slapped me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> that is really interesting and just how the very man's world of this movie, you know what I mean? Like it's a very... The way masculinity is portrayed in this movie is really interesting. Like, so the context for that scene is Fontaine has this part that he wants, but he doesn't think he's going to get it. And he scared his career is on a downturn. So he kind of sheds a couple tears in front of his godfather and is immediately punished for it. Yeah. You know, you could be a man. What does he say? Like, all these Hollywood types get you crying like a woman. <laughs> but then he immediately is like, all right, hey, 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 go have fun. Go relax. I'll take care of it. Right. It's like, hey, I love you and I'll take care of you, but you are not allowed to show weakness in front of me. Right. Yeah. You know? Because he's an ally of, of the family, right? Well, like, it's just, it's like, you know, like, you know, I love you and I'll take care of you, but you have to be a man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and, and that he's kind of in contrast to the other people that we come and see ask for favors right right um, the other the other if, like characters are like i want justice and i'm passionate about this and i'm i'm here with my story and and asking for help and he's like sitting here just like crying like oh i'm not getting the part. i'm not gonna be a famous actor yeah. yeah yeah and you could be a man yeah there's also that part too but uh <laughs> yeah i guess and just the way the women are relegated to the sidelines in this movie too. Like, yeah. And maybe this is a good point to talk about that. You know, it's interesting, especially that early scene with the undertaker Brazara or whatever. Yep. So the whole thing is his daughter was beaten up by these two men who tried to sexually assault her and he wants them murdered for it. And the Don says, well, your daughter's still alive. So why would I murder them? And he says like, well, she'll never be beautiful again. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, Oh, like, Oh, so she's ruined now because she's not beautiful anymore right? right or like how you know connie the daughter and the wife carmella like they barely have anything to do with the family they're very much relegated to the background yeah. i don't even think carmella has a line in the movie i i think she says a few words but they're not like central at all at any yeah point exactly um, so and you know what and that's an interesting there's maybe an interesting point here to analyze, too, in the fact that Kay is really the only one who has a personality from the get-go, right? And mm -hmm. she's her and Michael are even when when they're discussing things back and forth at the beginning of the film. At the beginning. And, and there's a transition to Michael finally becoming a part of the family. And over that process, Kay, again, is pushed into the background. Yeah, I mean, the final shot of the movie is the door being closed in her face. Exactly. It's like, hey, this is where... Okay, men are talking. Like, yeah. you don't get to see this part. Yeah, so. and that's kind of... I think it's somewhat purposeful. Oh, um, it's absolutely deliberate. But, yeah, it is interesting how... Even the whole Apollonia thing, right? Mm -hmm. He's basically just like, oh, wow, I like her. And then 
he's like oh wow she's pretty like i'm gonna he's basically just kind of flips on in there and then while he's still kind of romantically involved with Kay, gets married to this apollonia lady right then she blows up and he doesn't really seem to even mention her ever again (laughs) and and actually that's uh something that's really funny is the actor who was playing her actually refused the role at first because she basically walked out of the the rehearsal because she was basically like all the character is is uh somebody beautiful who he meets they get married and then she dies and that's literally the character why like why would i want to play this and <laughs> and then Coppola what marlon like marlon brando and luca brazi approached her in private and said either her brains or her signature are going to be on this contract oh man that's a great quote yeah i love that quote yeah it's true though right like it is and also like you know sunny michael cheats on his girlfriend mm-hmm. sunny is routinely cheating on his wife yep fredo is a banging cocktail reaches <laughs> two, two at time. a time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which also i'm like really but <laughs> you know like it is actually tom hagen seems to be the only guy who isn't mistreating women in his life right but that's just because we never see him with a woman yeah so but we don't know Vito seems to disapprove like there's that scene where Sonny says something stupid during a meeting and Vito says like, uh, you got, he says something like, he's like, ah, he's like all that running around with that young girl has got you soft between the ears. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So. Well, Vito's like old style, right? Like he's all about the honor. Yeah. I don't think Vito would cheat on his wife. No. Even though we never barely ever see them in the same room together. Yeah. But there's definitely like a different code of honor to him than the rest of his family at this point in time. And that's probably also just because of Vito having more of a struggle to get to where he is. Whereas, you know, the rest of the Corleones, up until the inflection point of the movie, there isn't a lot of struggle for them or we don't see a lot of struggle. It's kind of like that, uh, that, that, that recurring thing, you know, about how great men usually have terrible sons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fortunately our dads weren't great men so there's still a chance for us yeah and so i think this movie there's a bit of a commentary on a that at this point in time in american history women don't have a lot of rights Mm -hmm. um and they're definitely like a little bit pushed to the background well in, in this family okay so the final scene so michael has carlo murdered garroted Mm-hmm. in the back from the back seat of a car and connie goes to him in hysterics saying that she killed he killed her husband he basically just has her taken away and then Kay says like did you do it and he basically says don't ever ask me about my business but just this one time you, you can, can ask me. me she says did you do it he's like no he's lying through his fucking teeth right and then that's basically how the movie ends like you know yeah he's just that that unsettling feeling where michael is no longer the good guy no he's kind of just like he just the final closing of the chapter of any redemption that michael might have as a person yeah and like he lies to her so like he doesn't even he so doesn't even blink and then you know his sister rightly assumes that she he murdered her husband he's just like Oh, she's in, she's hysterical. Like, yeah. ah, those women. <laughs> like, I don't know why he has a Boston accent just now, <laughs> but hey, those women—they're hysterical. 
Um, I'm Michael Corleone. <laughs> I talk like this for some reason. It's getting late, but uh, <laughs> what were we saying? Um, we were just talking about some ad lib stuff. I there's a few other scenes that I want to talk about, and then if there's any other scenes that you want to talk about, we can discuss those too. I want to talk quickly about the restaurant scene. This isn't the first time that we see characters speaking in Italian, and oh, the yeah. scene prior to is actually dubbed over like you understand when they're speaking italian what's being said and in this scene i like i was kind of confused i was like did they just accidentally make a mistake here and forget to add the dub in on youtube are you talking about subtitles yeah subtitles yeah um that did seem a little inconsistent yeah and so there's there's actually a very interesting reason behind that it's because solazo is just speaking at such a rapid clip that they tried to subtitle it and because he's speaking so fast and saying so many things they actually couldn't subtitle it It didn't work so they just basically left it without subtitles and basically you're just supposed to sit there and infer based on michael's voice and a few italian words that kind of sound english (laughs) you know what i thought it was i thought it was a stylistic thing because it seemed to me and i could be wrong but it seemed to me that like when people spoke italian in america it was never sub there were never subtitles but when they spoke Italian in Italy, there were subtitles. I thought that was like a stylistic choice. No, they spoke they spoke Italian beforehand. That's and that's why it jumped out at me as off because oh, there okay. were subtitles in the scene prior to that, and it was just because of like filming it, they couldn't, and they had already filmed it, and this was in the edit room that they realized that they had a problem. Went, screw it. So um, for yeah. one scene, we don't speak. It's almost like Michael was so nervous he forgot to speak italian yeah. so if you're wondering i actually do have the english uh version here so i would like to hear what he says so he starts with i am sorry what happened to your family was business i have much respect for your father but your father his thinking is old-fashioned you must understand why i had to do that now let's work through where we go from here and so then he goes to the bathroom and he comes back and he say everything all right I respect myself, I understand, and cannot allow another man to hold me back. What happened was unavoidable. I had the unspoken support of the other family dons. If your father were in better health without his eldest son running things, no disrespect intended, we wouldn't have this nonsense. We will stop fighting until your father is well and can resume bargaining. No vengeance will be taken. We will have peace, but your family should interfere no longer. Yeah, all right. He's trying to convince Michael, and he's trying to approach Michael in the right way as well, like in a cool manner like that like that wouldn't have worked with someone like sonny but with michael i think that's the right approach but at this point you know there's definitely the dark side to michael that's starting to brew here and and what's really dark about it is what the other character says to him when they're planning this is you know you go to the washroom you walk out and you just pop them like immediately like you don't even sit down you pop them you walk out and Michael decides to sit down with them and listen to them and then shoot them point blank in, in the face. I didn't catch that. That um, is interesting. Yeah. It's it's a very like it's very subtle, but it is like a, a little bit of a difference from what the plan is, is he decides to almost like, you know, simmer on on the moment for a little while longer that he's got them. Like he's basically he's got them. He like and he knows that he's got them, that that there's nothing they can do at this point. He's got the gun. And all he's like waiting for is just the right time to blow their brains out. Pop him in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times. Yeah. Uh, speaking of deaths, let's talk Don Corleone's death and his death scene. So that death scene was in the novel, mm-hmm. um, and, but was not originally intended to be in the movie. 
they didn't want it in there because studio executives thought, you know what, we can just show the funeral scene and the audience can just infer what happened, that he died. Mm. And so Coppola shot the scene with three cameras in a private residence. And basically, they just made that garden up in a day and then immediately tore it down after filming. And he told Marlon Brando, we're not even going to write lines for you. Just do whatever you want with the scene. Uh-oh. Uh, which is, I mean, that's on point for Marlon Brando. Yeah. Marlon Brando, you get two things with him as an actor. You either get him completely ad-libbing his lines and just figuring it out because he's a method actor and he just wants to be in character and you just let him do his thing. Well, that's what they did for Apocalypse Now, right? Yep. He just kind of went off the handle. Exactly. Or Marlon Brando was a guy who never once first read his lines and he would just have his lines carted up everywhere. It's like they, people would hold like, uh, what are those called? cue cards, cue cards up uh, and... and for his lines and so he like a lot of his takes in this movie and his other movies would just be like the first time he is reading that line he's literally reading that line and reacting to it and deciding how his character is going to react to it and that's the first take and that's the take that they take always it's kind of funny how irresponsible and lazy that is but he's still so brilliant yeah you know what i mean <laughs> he's There's... the only one who can get away yeah. with it it's kind of there's that movie he did, Last Tango in Paris, where, like, there's a scene where he's, like, kneeling by his wife's altar, and he's, like, staring up at the ceiling mm-hmm. into this light, almost kind of though he's talking to God. And it's a very powerful movie scene, but it kind of loses something when you realize it's just Marlon Brando looking up at his cue cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just a guy standing over him like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, That's hilarious. Anyways... We ha- you know what scene we haven't talked at all about is the scenes with the movie executive who Tom Hagen is sent to go bargain with. Yeah. Give him an offer he can't refuse. I really love that scene because, you know, Tom is a very subdued person. He's very controlled. Like, you know, he's when he's talking to that studio executive. He's measured. Yeah. He's yeah. very Yeah. And, and then, like you said, there's the really funny line where the guy's spitting racist remarks at him. And he's like, I'm German Irish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no. then and then when the, when the first scene that they're they're talking there on set, when he basically says, you know what, we'll have let's have dinner together and we'll talk about this further. He literally grabs the executive producer's fist, shakes it and walks out like <laughs> like not his hand he's sitting uh, there with yeah. his fist and he grabs his fist and shakes it yeah he's just <laughs> like all right that, that actually went over my head but... <laughs> next time you watch it pay attention because it's hilarious yeah actually you know what i i said earlier sunny might be my favorite character it might actually be tom it might actually be tom hagan tom's like the character that because he's he's gets his hands the least dirty he's probably the easiest to empathize with. Well, his position is also the most unique. Right. Like, he's a Corleone, but he's also kind of not. He's Yeah, he's the most outside looking in. So You know what? What's interesting, though, not to cut you off, is when he has to deliver the news about Sonny, he refers to Carmela as Mama. Right. But then I think... I don't think he ever calls... He never calls Vito Dad. No. Yeah. So Carmilla is mama, but he never calls Vito dad. He just calls him like, uh, he occasionally refers to him as like the old man Mm -hmm. in the same way Sonny refers to him as the old man. Right. But yeah, I did think that was interesting. Hmm. I didn't notice that. But also on on the note of of the executive producer and, and all of those kind of scenes, I wanted to note the the horse's head scene because that is a very oh, famous my God, scene, yeah. an infamous scene where they find the horse's head in the blankets. And 
that's a very notorious scene as well because it just so happens that that horse's head is real yep and it was a very big sticking point for human rights activists so here here's the whole background story to this spill the tea they got the horse's head from a dog food plant um like Uh, a dog a dog manufacturing food plant and so basically it was just like a byproduct of that so it's not like they cut the horse's head off no they just found a dead horse's head they just like went to like a, a dog food manufacturing plant and were like can you spare a horse head and they were like yeah sure i don't see why not <laughs> um so so i mean it's not like they killed a horse outright for this yeah i mean they probably could have gone with a, a fake but that's the way things i guess were done back then uh, i guess so what's really interesting about that scene is the actor playing the executive producer didn't know that that was a real horse's head until he threw the blankets open and it was sitting at his feet so the screaming of him is very real in that scene. It's kind of like how they chucked Alan Rickman off Nakatomi Plaza, right? Yeah. <laughs> Without telling him. It's like, I guess sometimes you have to mess with your actors. <laughs> only the best do that. Yeah, Just only the best can get away with that. Talking about Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I actually, this movie did make me shed a couple manly tears. Mm-hmm. The scene towards the end where Michael and Vito have a very private moment and Vito is getting on in years and he kind of just... He kind of just admits that he never wanted this. It's like, I never wanted this life for you, Michael. Right. He's like, you know, I wanted better things for you, like Governor Corleone, Mm -hmm. like Senator Corleone. Like, you know, there's a lot of remorse in that scene. Yeah. Which is, but it's also, you know, who else was qualified to take over? Yeah. Sonny was a good guy, but he wasn't qualified to be the Don. And Vito admits it. Yeah. And, I mean, Fredo, I was actually just reading that. Did you know that Fredo has now become, a Fredo is, that's a term for a weak link? Yep. It's it's like, if you think being named Karen sucks, try being named Fredo. <laughs> like, it's now synonymous with, like, weakness and incompetence. Yeah. I mean, there's probably not a lot of kids named Fredo these days, but. I should hope not. By the way. <laughs> When Fredo shows up later in the movie, I almost didn't recognize him because, like, he's wearing, like, a swanky new suit and he's got a spray tan and sunglasses. Yep. It was a minute before I was like, wait, Fredo? (laughs) (laughs) Just having a a fun time being a playboy in Vegas. Yeah, really went native and he's really a Vegas native now. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesus. That was a great scene as well, actually, with Mo Green. Um, Yeah. Like, the actor who plays Mo Green was really the right character for the role like he he really plays up like this smarmy like businessman you know like he's like you know you don't tell me about my business and what i do like i buy you out well there's Um, that famous line where he's like i made my bones when you were still dating cheerleaders (laughs) yeah and and like it's really interesting because it's also another character moment of of showing who fredo is because mo green regular slapped fredo around and the rest of the corleones you would never do that to yeah you don't lay hands on a corleone no yeah and and fredo was the exception and you know like michael sticks up for him but michael's also the younger of the children and like i said no other corleone you would allow that for and we show and we see specifically that connie anytime that carlo lays hands on her there are repercussions to it yeah absolutely and and then you find out that like this has kind of been happening off screen for a a while while now now. and and... yeah and then but then you know 
Fredo kind of backpedals. He's like, hey, you know, like, blah. It only... He kind of backpedals and makes excuses. But then, you know, Michael very coldly says to him, like, don't take sides against the family. Right. Don't ever take sides against the family. Yeah, which is a very important rule to the Corleones. Let's talk a little bit more about, like how the cinematography was and and how they shot this film like it it shot very point of view-esque like most scenes it feels like you're there and you're you're just the extra character in the room kind of yeah and like you said with the 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 lighting is is very dark for most of the film and the kind of the purpose behind that is to show like you know this is kind of a cd operation right like this isn't just some mom and pop store like this is what they're doing is is very illegal yeah Um, and while we do empathize with these characters because of how they're portrayed there's also a darkness here that we can't forget about yeah definitely and what's really interesting is there's only one scene in the entire movie that's shot from an aerial point of view and that's the scene when uh, the dawn is shot that's the only single scene in the movie where Coppola convinced the cinematographer George Willis to do that. Get a crane out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how and gr- so the reason why they did that as well is Coppola wanted it because he wanted it from God's point of view. And that's like, that's what they wanted to show the scene. That is a great scene too, especially with how useless Fredo is. Yeah. It's just like anybody else who was there and maybe the Don doesn't get shot, shot or maybe five times in the back yeah, yeah or maybe there's some sort of like you know vengeance like maybe whoever's there is actually in time to actually shoot gun those guys down and and immediately we would find out you know who did it and what why they did it kind of thing mm-hmm. but because it's fredo literally fredo just like jumps out of the car like bumbles the gun yeah. and then they're gone <laughs> and then he cries yeah <laughs> The, the ineptitude of Fredo, which is something we'll get back to. And I think this is a good point to s- segue into our sequels, prequels, and reboots. Okay. So it's based on a novel by Mario Puzo, and it was written in 1969. Funny enough, the novel itself was, at the time it was writing, before it was even completed, somebody at Paramount had gotten word of what he was writing and decided to buy the rights to the movie before it was even finished being written so wow, that must have felt good yeah whoever that executive was uh would be bragging about that for the yeah, rest of their life yeah, yeah yeah so there's definitely something there if you are somebody who likes to read go check that out i haven't read it myself yet i know mario puzo was a co he also co-wrote the screenplay yes with he did. francis ford coppola yeah and he actually got a coppola ended up giving him a, a writing credit on it as well and that's why uh that was actually an argument in that the opening credit um where they show the godfather it actually says his name on on top as well which is something the oh studio my, yeah didn't it's want. mario puzo's the godfather yeah right yeah, yeah. and so it was a, a level of respect for for him because he was so involved in everything with the book, as an as an aspiring novelist i can respect that yeah yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool eh the godfather has a, two sequels so there's the godfather part two which comes out two years after this um which i'm sure we'll cover in two years time it's also considered one of the greatest films of all time and it's often actually debated whether or not it's the better of the two i've never actually seen it myself i've only seen it once i've seen the godfather a number of times and it's just because it's a sequel movie that you probably just watch it less like that's something yeah. that i always do but yeah question for you are you going to go and watch the second one like do you want to watch that one after seeing this? I probably should, shouldn't I? What's interesting is that like this movie, it doesn't feel like it needed a sequel. And yet the second one 
is like i said shockingly good yeah yeah so the second one it's kind of interesting because not only is it like michael's story but again is interwoven with vito corleone's story as a young Vito coming to America. Played by De Niro, right? Played by Robert De Niro himself. Wow. And this is something we actually briefly talked about in our Heat episode is because it's playing around with two different timelines in the Corleone family. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro don't meet in this movie and don't meet for like 20 years, basically, until he... Right. That is, together. that is interesting. And De Niro won an Academy Award for it, right? Uh, I believe so. I didn't look at that. I um, think he... Won the Academy Award for playing young Vito Corleone. Yeah. And Marlon Brando won the Academy Award for playing old Vito Corleone. He did win that award, yes. Yeah. And what's really actually interesting about this as well is part two was actually greenlit by the studio before the first movie was even finished filming. Um, Why wow, they liked it that much, eh? There was so much buzz about the movie and how good it was going to be and how everybody was so excited about what they were filming that they were like, let's do it. Let's make a second one. Wow. And you do not hear that very often no. in Hollywood. <laughs> no, if anything, you hear the opposite. Like, yeah. oh, it's going how badly? Okay, let's can it. Well, if you think about it even, like, a recent tale is Dune, right? Like, if, if you were one of the first people to see Dune in theaters in the first week or so, there wasn't a part one on the, the title of Dune. It was just Dune because Denis Villeneuve wasn't sure if he was going to get a second movie, right? It, the first movie had to do well before they were going to be given the option to do the second one so did they actually change it while it was still in theaters to yep. dune part one yeah i didn't know they actually could do that yeah huh. that, that is something that happened uh so kind of very interesting so this is very much a a one-time scenario where that happens okay and we're, we'll talk about the godfather part two i don't want to talk about that too much here just in case there's spoilers and you haven't seen it either so i, I, I want to leave that one we'll do it on this podcast my mom remembers seeing it in theaters cool yeah i i'm jealous of her i me too yeah we will do that one in two years from now i think i'm gonna watch the godfather part two in the next week okay because i really enjoyed this one and i forgot how good it was and i need to see part two and see and just compare and contrast it to the first one mm -hmm. um and see which one a holds up better but b which one i just enjoy more and, and whether or not i should maybe watch the godfather two a little bit more often as well yeah maybe i i don't even know what it's about yeah, gonna, I know. I, I know nothing about it. I'm excited. Maybe you and I should watch it together sometime. Maybe soon. we should actually. <laughs> and then uh, part three comes out in 1990, years and years after part one and part two. To in this early widespread 70s. critical acclaim. Um, you know what? So, The Godfather Part Three is not remembered as the strongest movie in the trilogy. Right. Um, and what's really interesting about The Godfather Part Three is if you actually look at the the reviews and not just like the anecdotal the godfather 3 is a disaster the reviews are mostly positive for the movie right um but there is some there is some asterisks to that apparently and i haven't seen the third part because again i'm kind of i kind of followed like what the general consensus was that this movie wasn't essential viewing right um but the a plot apparently is a little bit of a jumbled up mess and uh sofia coppola who is Francis Coppola's daughter has a starring role in this film as well. And apparently she just is a God awful actor in, in the movie. And good director. Yeah. Just not an actress. Yeah. She's a great director. Apparently. Yeah. Um, I loved lost in translation, but it's funny how though Coppola was wise enough to cast his sister and she did a great job. He but didn't want to cast his sister though. Right. Oh, he, he did reluctantly. No, the, the studio was like, no, she's actually a good actor. Oh, like, it's the studio who campaigned for her. Okay. Yeah. So he works with his sister and she's fantastic, hmm. but then he casts his own daughter and it's, 
Yeah. Although, although Sofia Coppola does make an appearance in The Godfather Part 1. She is the baby, baby Michael, who gets baptized. Oh. Because she had just been born at that point in time. So they okay. just used her. <laughs> hey, I get, that kind of makes sense. We actually. got a baby. That's kind of neat. Um, <laughs> I could just imagine like Coppola going up, like getting out his megaphone. He's like, does anyone have a baby? <laughs> like, Wait, I have a baby. Yeah. Get her over here. But actually, so on, on the note of Godfather Part 3, in 2020, there was a re-released version put out by Coppola that's re-edited called The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. I've heard of that. It's apparently there's only very slight, slight changes to the movie and mostly in the beginning and end of the film. But it is, if you're going to watch the third part, it seems like that that is the more better well-received of of the two versions so but it's it, only like marginally better like right? yeah exactly I like marginally you, better like it yeah. fixes some of the issues with the film but i would recommend checking that out over the original part three did you know that uh sylvester stallone released a re-edit of rocky four within the last couple of years i did not know that like the yeah. one with ivan drago in russia Oh, that's the one he decided to fix? He fixed <laughs> apparently he apparently there were things that have been bothering him all these years and he decided to fix it. So. I am somewhat shocked that he chose that one to fix. Oh yeah. uh, now number five. Exactly. <laughs> um well, but you fix number, number five fi- might be unfixable. Well you fix number five by just not watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know it's, that's a good point. I I saw a, uh, a talk show appearance with Stallone where they asked him to rate all the Rocky movies. Mm-hmm. And he did number one was like a 10. Number two was a 7.5. Number three was a nine. Mm-hmm. Number four was a 7.5. Number three is Mr. T, right? Yeah. Mr. Yeah, T. N- Mr. T is like very well received. That's a good movie. one. Yeah. But then he said Rocky five was a zero. Yeah. It's yeah. a bad movie. <laughs> so. I remember what there are movies that kind of piss you off while you watch them and that's one of them those are one of those movies that you're kind of like fuck this movie yeah, <laughs> with like, all your heart yeah yeah it's like you're on a really bad date and you can't think of a reason to leave you're yeah. just like Ugh. yeah i don't drop the f-bond much on this podcast but uh my that one deserved it yeah yeah anyways anyway you know so yeah so that's the essential viewing there something i found really interesting um during my research of sequels prequels and reboots is if you're somebody who can't get through a three-hour film i've got maybe an alternative for you although i put an asterisk on that a few years after part one and part two were released coppola and executives decided to recut part one and part two into a chronological miniseries and so they essentially took part one and part two cut it into four parts i think around just maybe hour 45 each and added some new scenes into it and put it in chronological order of Vito's arrival in america right until the end of part two and so interesting so if you can find that it's called the godfather saga why i put the asterisks on it is because in my reading a yes it does make it a little bit more easier to watch in terms of timing because it cuts things off at you know at at the hour half hour 40 minute mark however the problem with putting it all in chronological order is it completely jumbles up the pacing of the films yeah um and so there is a problem with pacing what i've read is that if you've already seen the films it's kind of an interesting watch to watch it all happen in chronological order but as somebody who's never seen the films, that's why I didn't bring it up in the when to watch, where to watch kind of section in our, our previous episode. 
because I don't think that's where you want to start with these series. I think you want to you want to watch them in the original intended. It sounds like uh, it sounds neat. Yeah, but maybe not. Maybe more. Maybe nothing more than a curiosity. Yeah, it's it's something that you know, like as maybe a, uh, if you're a Godfather diehard and you just want to experience the films in a new light, like it's it's just an, a different way to watch them, and it, yeah. it's kind of a, a neat experience, but. It's not the best way to experience it. It's almost kind of like the Snyder Cut, right? I remember watching the Snyder Cut and be like, okay, like that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm never going to think about it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The last, actually, I have two other direct references, sequels, prequels, and reboots to this. The first is The Offer, uh, which is a brand new TV show that came out last year, I believe. It's 10 episodes on Paramount+. Plus, uh, and it's actually TV miniseries about the production of the godfather part one and it's from the perspective of the producer of the godfather that is interesting um, oh i get it the offer as in an offer he can't refuse exactly makes yeah. sense so it's uh kind of neat and I, i'm definitely gonna check that out actually because i have paramount plus right now and we're probably gonna cancel it in the near future i think but uh um, well, are you all caught up on south park yeah <laughs> there's one other quick mention here that there are two indian remakes of the godfather because of course they are Whoa. um one Good of them, for them is a 1995 bollywood version and another one is a 1997 hindi version so if how are, are they i can't imagine that they were as revered as the godfathers but you know if you're into bollywood film and you want to check that out and see how they decided to interpret the godfather you're more than welcome to go check those out maybe i would what if i had shown up today having watched the bollywood version? <laughs> <laughs> like a trade spotting where yeah. we got the, that wrong <laughs> yeah yeah this you know there's a lot of singing i wasn't expecting all yeah this singing yeah jeez. <laughs> this podcast is really going down the tubes <laughs> that would have been hilarious and also it's kind of problematic all right, but anyway, let's move on. We've got a lot to talk about still. <laughs> this is going to be a long episode for sure. So effects and filming. So let's start with the novel and then we'll move into the movie. So a lot of the novel is directly or indirectly inspired or based on true events of mafia stories. Okay. If, if you want to read up on any of the actual gangsters, it's the Gallo family. Um, So Crazy Joe Gallo. It's basically, that's who Sonny is actually based on. And then Michael and Fredo are also based on Gallo family members. Hmm. Um, so there's actually there's actually some real stories there. But for timing, I think I'm going to move on um, from getting into the details of that. That's just further reading. Interesting. Um, the Italian-American mafia crime syndicate were actually very against this movie being made. And this movie almost didn't get made because of them. They actually created an Italian-American Civil Rights League to try to get the film to be stopped from being made. They threatened the producers. Like, they, they'd show up at their house and, and threaten them. Like, it, it went, it got pretty crazy for a time. Um, wow. And at one point, uh, the producer, Albert Rudy, uh, ended up having to meet with Columbo, uh, Joe Columbo, like, of the Columbo family. <laughs> of the Columbo crime family. And he basically said, you're not allowed to use the terms mafia or Cosa Nostra, uh, which are like the terms for the mafia in America. Um, so that basically to kind of like, you know, put some of the uh, sure the realism out of, of, of the film so they weren't directly attributed to it because they don't want to be portrayed in Nag of Light. Now, obviously that's not how they were portrayed they're yeah, portrayed a romanticized I, kind of yeah light right and so 
they ended up really appreciating the film. Funny enough, after the film was made, like there was one particular mob boss that walked out of that movie saying like, you know, like it, he was like profoundly affected by it. And, and it felt like, you know, that he was walking out of a movie showcasing his life and the life of the mob. And there was several mob bosses afterwards that basically actually changed the way they talked and acted to be based more on the like Godfather to Marlon be like Brando. Vito. Yeah. Okay. So they actually changed their voice and their mannerisms to be more like Vito. That's almost so funny. I can't even laugh. Like it's yeah. like you did such a good job portraying a gangster that like mm-hmm. you're. I and I think I also read somewhere that Francis Ford Coppola didn't actually do much research into actual gangster culture. Well, and that's because also a little bit because the the author had kind of already set the groundwork up for what the film was going to be about. However. On that note as well, Coppola decided to change a little bit of the perspective of the film to be in terms of capitalism. Like the underlying theme of the movie is capitalism. Well, how many times do they say it's just business? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a a critique on capitalism as well. Well, there's that great line where Salazero or whatever his name is says like, blood is a big expense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Marlon Brando performing as Don Corleone. He doesn't actually look like that, if you weren't aware. He uh, he actually wanted to make Don Corleone look like a bulldog. And so when he was auditioning, he put cotton in his cheeks to kind of add that kind of droop to himself. And then when they actually started filming, he got a custom mouthpiece made by a dentist to look like that, like to have that those big cheeks and that change the jowls. Jaw line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, if you ever want to go and see that little piece of film history, it's on display at the American Museum of Moving Image in Queens, New York. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I saw Last Tango in Paris, which was around the same time, and he does not look that bad. No, he not at all. Like he looks normal... very different. It's, it's actually really funny how different he looks to yeah. uh, Vito. And it's because of that, and again, a little bit the method acting and, and him wanting to portray the character as as he felt the character was. As a bulldog. Yeah. Yeah. Lenny Montana, who played Luca Brasi, uh, was so nervous about working with Marlon Brando that in their first take of their scene together, when they when they meet and like talk at the wedding, um, he actually like he really flubbed his lines. Like when when we see that on camera, that's him as an actor messing up his lines. But Coppola liked his genuine nervousness so much that they actually decided to leave it in the film. So like him him messing up his lines there are like like him as an actor being nervous more than him as like the character but it was just so well done and uh afterwards because that they loved that shot so much they actually filmed the scenes of him basically practicing his speech earlier and i hope that is a masculine child <laughs> yeah i laughed twice when well, you said it's that it's pretty funny because like in during that scene vito looks a little put out like he looks a little baffled by what's going on and it's just like all right thanks go have a good time <laughs> like <laughs> yeah it's a it, yeah <laughs> Oh, man. I, I love everything about that. But, you know, I'll know I've made it as an author when like some six foot seven bruisers scared to meet me. <laughs> That's when I'll know I've become successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talking about being successful and being intimidated is Mario Puzo, the uh, the author, the author was actually 
did not base the character of Johnny Fantane off Frank Sinatra, despite me turning to Jess and saying, that's, that's totally Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Because I had read about this, like, I don't know, a couple months ago, that Frank Sinatra was connected with the mob. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it was kind of assumed, like, even at that time, that that character was essentially riffing Sinatra. And so Frank Sinatra was pissed <laughs> that that's how he was portrayed. Yeah. Uh, and so he actually met Mario in a restaurant and like almost assaulted him oh <laughs> um and just like tore into him kind of thing you know what? i take it back that's what i know of have made it as an author is if celebrities try to beat me up yeah exactly and so actually because of that because of all of the uproar about that and frank sinatra's uproar they actually cut fontaine's role down in the film quite a bit just down to those couple of scenes he actually was a more prominent figure in the original Novel. script of the film yeah huh Interesting. And on on the note of being cut down as well, James Caan was also furious that his scenes were cut down as Sonny because apparently there was up to 45 additional minutes of of Sonny's character in the film. And so he lost it on the producer at the premiere. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, hey, you cut my whole fucking part out. Jesus. (laughs) Even though he's still our favorite part. Oh, yeah. Like, he's still a big part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. He was furious. Also, like, I hate to say it, but like, I feel like that's just the right amount of Sonny. Yeah. Like what more could he have done? Yeah. Like, I, I how agree. many more t- how many more scenes could we have where he It's enough to appreciate him without getting irritated by him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't overstay his welcome as a character. And, yeah. and he could have. A character like that definitely could have. Yeah. On the note of his uh and his character's portrayal, his assassination, they filmed it in only one take because there was a hundred and forty nine squibs taped to uh his body to simulate the machine guns all pew, hitting pew, him. Pew, yeah. yeah. So basically like you can only really do that once. I don't know how squibs feel to have them explode on you, but I can't imagine it feels great all of the time probably not fun and so the actual technicians who put all the squibs on his body when they were doing it were like uh wow we've never actually put this many squibs on a person before (laughs) and con said you didn't have to tell me that right now (laughs) that's pretty funny Uh, yeah not great timing there al pacino's face the when he gets uh his jaw broken by the police chief by getting sucker punched yeah i i was kind of mixed feelings about the makeup and and what they used with it like did you did that jump out as you as like this looks odd or or were you fine with it no but do you know what i did think what because we're talking about timeline and stuff because like it seems like it took months for the bruising to go down because his jaw was actually broken and yeah. i think they should have maybe explicitly said that a little bit more because i didn't realize his jaw was that busted until after well i, was I think sunny says broke his jaw but like i thought he was just I thought he was being hyperbolic. Right. I thought he was exaggerating. But no, he legitimately broke his jaw. And so I I agree with you. Well, I've never broken my jaw, but I didn't know you could... He doesn't seem like he has a broken jaw. He's talking fine. Well, he's talking like kind of muted. His mouth isn't moving much. And he actually, during those scenes, uh, had his mouth wired shut. Oh, did he? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think that they could have done a little bit more because I, I thought, you know, like this looks like... I was okay, like, uh, for getting punched, I was like, this seems like a lot, right? But if his if his jaw broke, then you know what? Also, uh, like, okay, I've never, I haven't been punched in the face in a while. But I've like, broken my wrist, and my wrist got to that size. Uh, so, like, after understanding that it was his jaw that was broken, and it wasn't, you know, just a little bit of bruising, that I could, I, I believed it after the fact. Maybe but... for me, it's more like, uh, in movies, people shrug off injuries a lot quicker. So it didn't seem like he got punched hard enough to break his jaw. But yeah. again, I don't know what real... Nobody's punched me in the jaw in a while. He's a police chief. He's got some power behind that punch, I think. Yeah, I guess so. 
So earlier in our first part of our episode, or in our first part of our series, I mentioned that there was a Star Wars connection here. You did. Um, you did mention that. I've got two Star Wars connections actually for you. The first is that George Lucas was the actual person behind what's considered called the mattress sequence, which is the montage midway through the film uh, with the newspapers. He actually did that for Francis Ford Coppola. Um, what? Uh, and it was actually favored to him for helping him fund American graffiti, but at, was asked not to be credited on the film. So that's probably why that's a, maybe a little known fact. And George Lucas actually used real photos from crime scenes. So some of those like bloody pictures of like mob bosses being gunned down was actually like real life pictures. Damn, George. <laughs> Frank Nitty, the enforcer, was Al Capone's right hand man. And he actually just like, he used that footage in there. Hey, kid, you want to be a star? <laughs> yeah. We talked about uh, Corleone, Sicily, the, the city in which Michael spends his time in exile. Yeah. That wasn't actually the real Corleone, Sicily. There's actually a real Corleone that you can visit. But the problem was, is at that point in the 70s, it was too developed for them to show it off as a as the 40s version right um so they used savoca or savaka I, I don't know how to pronounce it sorry yeah <laughs> um and so that's where they shot it at so if you ever want to go see like that beautiful town i'm i'm sure it's built up and it's it's not as beautiful as it once was but that's a, a location that you can go and check out other location that i want to mention and we actually mentioned this on a previous podcast the executive producer's house was used that that awesome mansion with the backyard pools and everything oh, okay um, was actually used in the movie the jerk that's where oh yeah, yeah. it you know i thought it looked kind of familiar yeah jess point was the one who noticed it as well she was like i think that's Navin johnson's house although i didn't see any uh what was it like water coolers filled with wine <laughs> i didn't see any of that so yeah so that was a real house. i did thought think i saw iron balls mcginty wandering around though. yep luca brazi <laughs> That's the same guy. Oh, that's right. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't. Eat. I was just making a dumb joke. Yeah, that's Jeez. Iron Balls McGinty is Luca Brasi, our other connection to the jerk. Wow. Was the jerk before The Godfather no, or it was after? after. It okay, was after. yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that one's 78, but I, I'm not 100% sure at this point in my mind. Something like that. But that house was actually burned down like right after The Jerk was made. Aww. Uh, so you can't go visit it. But it was in California. It was a real mansion. I, I love <laughs> that we're building like this little bit of a VCR extended universe. Um, I guess so. Of, I, of all of our connections to our films that we've been doing. I like to, my headcanon is that those two movies take place in the same universe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. i love it i yeah. love it iron balls mcginty yeah uh, really before he became luca brazi tragic or maybe you know what he was shamed by his beating that he received from navin johnson and so he moved <laughs> out to uh, new york from california or maybe he survived the garroting attempt and then he reinvented himself as iron balls mcginty <laughs> <laughs> he said to hell with all of them yeah yeah um no that's a character arc yeah I have one deleted scene that I want to mention because I think it's actually kind of very important. Fabrizio, uh, Michael's Sicilian bodyguard who planted the bomb that kills Apollonia. The one who betrays him, yeah. Yes. In the original draft of the film, he was supposed to be found by Michael at a pizza parlor that he opens in America later on in the movie and then at the end of the film was supposed to be Michael blown him up with a shotgun basically. Wow. <laughs> and they actually filmed that scene what ended up happening though is they cut it because the makeup artist used too much blood in the scene and it ended up looking comical um, uh, how much blood was in the scene so 
there's actually if you google michael corleone shotgun you can probably find some pictures of the scene because it was a very widely used scene to promote the movie even though the scene actually didn't end up in the, in the movie yeah um but for those who are looking for a little bit of redemption there is a scene where fabrizio meets his untimely death in the godfather part two that was also cut <laughs> uh, uh, this is not your day fabrizio but it was added to the godfather saga and i'm sure if you've got the ultimate edition of whatever godfather 4k or blu-ray film is out there you could probably get that scene in there you know what'd be funny is if uh they shot a fabrizio death scene in part three and they also <laughs> cut it <Yeah. laughs> but that time it was just francis Ford coppola being a dick <laughs> All right, let's move into score. So the score is like, honestly, one of the most iconic scores of all time. It's... It... Da, na, na. I'm not doing it, but... Yeah. It's so memorable. Like, I've had it stuck in my head since I watched this. You could pick any score song within the film, and I could probably sing it back to you. Like, the when, when they're in the hospital scene, we didn't talk about this at all, but... The hospital scene where Michael goes to visit Vito and there's nobody there is so eerie. Like, oh yeah, and they build the tension with that score of like that, like doom, doom. Like it, it's it's just again another one of those scenes that tension is just built very well, and it's a lot of it's on the score to kind of do the heavy lifting. Yeah, that's also like the first scene we really get to see how like quick witted Michael is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I very much And agree. also, thank God for Enzo the Baker, who just happened to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actually, uh, this is something that I didn't mention, but uh, what I read about is, um, so he, every single person who was given a favor at the beginning of the movie is ultimately pays back their favor. That's and right. And Enzo is one of those people who pays back the favor at that point in time. That's true, yeah. So is uh, The Undertaker, yep. Balazara or whatever. Yep, and Johnny Fontaine, Frank Sinatra. Also that. Also that. <laughs> um, not Frank Sinatra. Not Sorry, not Frank Sinatra. I don't, want, I don't want Frank Sinatra bursting into the room and <laughs> kicking the shit out of us. And we're talking about Oscars, so this is my first dabble into the Oscar discussion. So the score of The Godfather was actually nominated for an Oscar, but had to be withdrawn because they realized that uh, some of the themes and some of the songs in the Godfather score were actually used in the compose in a composer's prior film, Fortunella. Oh. Um, so what do you like self plagiarized? Yeah. So the person is Nito Rota, who who scored it, mm -hmm. and he actually scored another movie that we talked about on this podcast. Uh, you might remember it was called Eight and a Half. It rings a bell. And all of Federico Fellini's films. Huh. And so he was actually not eligible for it, but then he actually ended up winning the Oscar for Best Original Score for The Godfather Part Two, even though they used some of those same themes from the first movie in the second movie, which were also themes that were used in a previous film. <laughs> okay. So convoluted a little bit. Just a little. Um, it's a good score, though. Oh, it's a great score. It's one of my favorites of all time. Legacy. It's time to talk Oscars in full. I'm going to list out everything, and then we'll talk about some of these. Okay. Uh, the Godfather was the winner of the following Oscars. It won Best Picture for the Year, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Marlon Brando. More about that later. Uh, it won Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, um, so for the novel. And so there was two actual, there was two actual winners there. Um, so it won four Oscars and then was nominated for another seven, I believe. Uh, oh. So 
three nominations for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. James Caan, Robert Duvall, Al Pacino, all were nominated. All three lost. And I think that is actually because I did some research into this. And so the way the voting system works with the Oscars is you vote for one person. And so having all three of those guys competing against each other would have actually caused the vote to have been split. Uh, Yeah. And so it actually went to somebody from Cabaret. From between the three of them, it would be hard to pick a front runner. It's really wild the fact that all three of them were nominated. And, And if you think about it again, like how much that splits the vote and then so it goes to somebody else. So that might be a case of like it maybe should have gone to all three of them, like maybe you tie them. <laughs> but I guess so. But yeah, it went to somebody else. It was also it also lost best director to Cabaret, best costume design, best sound, best film editing, and best music. But that one was withdrawn. Um, all to Cabaret or just to different movies? A lot of them went to Cabaret actually. Cabaret huh. won a lot of awards that year. It's a movie that actually we're going to talk about in the second part of our oscars discussion because i haven't seen that film yet you have um, a long time ago yeah it was it was definitely one of the most important films of that year that was the only real competition in my opinion with (laughs) the godfather and so we're gonna kind of maybe do a comparison between the two but i believe cabaret won eight awards that year while the godfather won three wow huh yeah so a lot of those awards that the godfather did not win went to cabaret and yet, Godfather is definitely the more iconic movie. Yeah, I mean, this is the case of the Oscars being the Oscars, right? Yeah, fair enough. So, and and you know what? And we haven't we haven't watched the Cabaret in a in a modern viewing yet. So also that. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see. Maybe maybe there's a discussion there. But what I did want to also mention is that uh, this is the year, the very very infamous year at the Oscars, that Marlon Brando decided to actually not show protest. up yeah he yeah. protested the oscars and instead sent a a native american woman named sachin Littlefeather to accept the award for him and then explain why she was there and and what she was protesting and was not well received uh, people booed people, i saw the clip yeah people booed it's a it's a very dark time for the oscars um however even in that sense it's a very controversial uh situation because it turns out later in life that she actually wasn't native at all um (laughs) she was just a white person looking for a little bit of attention although you know good cause but also very very gray situation the whole thing so i didn't realize she wasn't actually native american yeah so there's there's a lot of controversy on both sides i don't know who's right or who's wrong at this point in in that situation there was definitely some definitely some racism towards native people at this time and probably still is in, in oh, definitely, Hollywood. Definitely still is. So yeah. yeah. So like was the message there? Yes. Things got a little bit murky. And and there, there's a whole lot of gray and there's a whole lot of people that looked foolish. But <laughs> And fortunately nothing bad ever happened at the Oscars ever again. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. That's that's part of the Oscars legacy of the film. Right now it's rated number two greatest movie of all time to the Shawshank Redemption. Huh. What would, on IMDb? Yeah, yeah. On IMDb. Which is and and the top two fifty is a pretty like revered list on IMDb mm-hmm. uh, for movies. It's honestly after just watching The Godfather, I think The Godfather's a better movie. Oh yeah. But if I but if I had just watched the Shawshank Redemption and hadn't seen The Godfather for a few years, I probably would say that the Shawshank Redemption is the best movie I ever made. So I 
think that I need to watch have a double feature night with Godfather and The Shawshank Redemption to end this once and for all. Yeah, I mean, they're very different movies. Yeah. Shawshank is more of a feel-good kind of movie. This more is a feel-bad kind of movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot to debate there. There's also some discussion about whether or not, again, the votes got split with Godfather Part Two, which I believe is fourth or fifth in the greatest movies of all time okay um so there's also some discussion there about whether or not it uh maybe split the vote you know some people who like the godfather part two more than part one it's number four sorry it's uh our top four are the shawshank redemption the godfather the dark knight and the godfather part two and then the 12 angry men little oh, there you there. go there you go your buddy yeah I don't think you're wrong to argue either of those movies. And again, you almost have to watch them back to back to decide which one you like better. Because for me right now, it's The Godfather. But if I watch The Shawshank Redemption next year or two years from now and haven't seen The Godfather in a couple of years, it could be that I like The Shawshank more that day. Again, it's kind of more of an apples to oranges kind of thing. Yeah. Like they're very different movies with very different feels and tones and vibes. And, and equally pretty damn good. And, yeah. and both of those movies would make my top 10 list of greatest movies of all time. Yeah, I'd say so. So in terms of references for the film, because this film has a long legacy, I tried to look up on IMDb all the references to this movie. And I kid you not, it took minutes to load the list of how many references that have been in future films to this movie. Like oh, it yeah. is legitimately, I couldn't load all of the references so the star wars reference number two that i was going to mention is that george lucas paid homage to the godfather in very specific scenes in star wars the first is the garroting death of luca brazi inspires leia killing jabba the hutt oh yes huh the second is the baptism scene and oh, so, Order 66. Order 66. 66. You got it. Yeah. Good for you. Pew, pew, pew. What is this? Amateur hour? <laughs> of course I got it. So a direct reference there. And again, like I mentioned earlier, there's a direct reference to Breaking Bad when um, they have all of the... All the inmates get killed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. The scene was has been used several times since, and every time it's been pretty effective. It's a pretty like jarring scene of, of indiscriminate violence. <laughs> Something about a montage of indiscriminate violence intercut with scenes of something not violent. It's, yeah, it's always effective. Yeah. Like I said, it's been parodied and referenced and redone in so many movies and so many TV shows that... I was just having lunch with my friend Andrew today, and mm -hmm. uh, I was telling him what we were doing today, and he said, did you ever watch The Animaniacs? And I said, yeah, a little. He said, I guess there was a recurring character called, like, the godfather pigeon oh yeah there was a pigeon who talked was. who talked directly like marlon brando yes he yeah. was i've completely forgot about that but so, i used to watch that show all the time yeah i forgot about that that's, too that's so funny <laughs> um but uh yeah that's i think what we'll leave it with references unless you have a specific reference you want to also note there no i think okay. that's good let's talk personal reviews of the pirate factor okay uh didn't watch it with a partner my mm. roommate kind of walked in and out of the room mm -hmm. I watched it alone and yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's funny. Like I like movies, but whenever I have to watch something that's over three hours long, if there's part of me that's like, uh, fuck. Right. Yep. But this did not feel, this was not a chore to get through. No. And that's kind of the highest praise I can give a movie. Yeah. This is like, I actually genuinely enjoyed it. I did actually. Okay. I did have to watch. 
I watched two hours and then I had to watch the other hour later because I had to go to work last night. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was still enjoyable to watch. Yeah. The whole thing. Is it in your top 10 list? Do you think? Uh, I don't know about my top 10, but definitely my top 20. Okay. I'll give you That's that. That's more a matter of taste. Yeah. You watched Goodfellas like last year, didn't you? Yeah, I sure did. So that that's like the other biggest like crime movie. Yeah. Do you have a preference over the two? I don't know. I think I've told you before, I'm not usually that into crime movies. Right. And I but I did really like Goodfellas. I actually watched it like two weeks before the actor died. Yeah. I forget his name. Um I would say this is probably my favorite crime movie. Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta, yeah. I watched it two weeks before Ray Liotta died, but uh mm-hmm. Again, this is one where it's kind of fluid for me. I just watched The Godfather, so Godfather will be number one, but I'll watch The Goodfellas in a year, and I'll say The Goodfellas is my number one of crime films ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, I, ca- I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you which one is higher of the two. They're both equally amazing for different reasons in my mind. Yeah. And you know what the stark difference is between the two for people who haven't seen one or the other? Goodfellas is about the business of being a gangster, and... The Godfather is about the family of... I was just about to say, like, you see more of the dirty work in Goodfellas. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't... It portrays it in, like, this is... This is how we were, and this is what we did to get to where we are, and and this is the reality behind what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas The Godfather is like, here's the family side of things and how we all dealt with what the hands we were given and how we, we lived and, and we how we justified it to ourselves a little bit too, right? Because, you know, you wouldn't... I don't think anybody in the Corleone family would consider themselves a bad guy. I think they were all people who were in the situation and did what they had to do in their minds to be successful and take care of their family. In that kind of really somber scene, Vito kind of sort of alludes to the fact that he has no illusions about what the family business really is, but he's also pretty unapologetic about it. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's like, I wasn't going to be made a fool. I wasn't going to dance on somebody's strings. I wanted to provide for my family, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Sonny was just too busy beating people up to care. Yeah. So for my review, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Objectively, it's definitely a top 10 for me. Like it, this one in Goodfellas probably sits in my top 10. And there again, that's kind of a fluid list. So it moves up and down depending on when I'd last seen it. Um, I do have to watch part two again to s- decide whether or not I like one or two better, but two probably sits in my top 20 if it doesn't quite sit in my top 10. I, I love these movies. They're, they're just really enjoyable to watch. The pacing's great. They're just so engaging. Like, the way that they're filmed, the way that they draw you into this world is just so intoxicating. And it's, yeah. it's three hours of, of time that, you know, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like I just sat down for three hours and watched a movie. Although it does feel like it's almost been three hours of, of podcasting. Sure does. Um, we've been talking for a long time now. This podcast is going to take me an even longer time to edit. So I think that's probably where we should wrap it up. Yeah, maybe. My neck is starting to get sore, too. (laughs) Yeah, so... For those of you who can't see, which is all of you, uh, this table is kind of low to the ground, and I have to hunch over (laughs) to talk into it. If if we didn't weren't splitting our episodes up, this would be our longest episode, and it wouldn't even be close, because we've been talking for almost three hours before I cut this up into... Has it been three hours? It has been almost that long. You know what, though? I don't... It doesn't really feel like three hours. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I mean, it'll feel like a lot longer for you, but yeah. it hasn't felt that longer. No, for but me. this is a good discussion. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun diving into The Godfather. There's a lot of stuff that I learned 
both in front of the camera that I didn't maybe follow the first time or even behind the camera stuff. And I, this was one of the more special episodes for me to dive into. This was a... <laughs> Join us for a very special episode on Vintage Cinema Rewind. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this. Go watch it if you haven't. Yeah, go watch it. And next episode, we're going to check out Cabaret and compare and contrast the two afterwards and, and how Cabaret managed to win eight of the... Oscar awards that uh, just hoovered him up that year yeah basically away from the godfather so I think that's going to be a really interesting discussion I'm looking forward to having that yeah definitely all right well until next time um we still haven't come up with a tagline yet a man in my position cannot afford to be made a fool of (laughs) no 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 it's a man in my position cannot afford to look ridiculous (laughs) all right have a good one everyone bye